Hey, we're going to center most of our gravity on one passage today. Typically, I'll fly through a dozen or so. I'd like to really maybe dig just a hair deeper than normal on one passage in Luke 15. So if you have a Bible or you use an app, that's where we're going to be today, Luke 15. It's going to be a helpful passage for us today. Um, for the first 17 years I was in the church, some of that I was a Christian, <laughs> but for the first 17 years I went to a church, I understood God's love for me differently than I do now. The, I think my understanding of how God looks at me has grown some depth and has um, become bigger, more beautiful, but I used to see God's love for me as more of a skeptical love. Some of you know what I mean when I say skeptical. He loved me because the Bible told me that he did, but he probably didn't like me. And if he did, it took a lot of heavy convincing that I was a likable person. Yeah, I imagine God for many of those 17 years um, to have a heavy suspicion of me, cautious with me, kind of like we can be with some people, right? We, we love them-ish, we kind of like them, but we're, we're very suspicious, we need them to do some things to maybe pull some of those walls down. So sure, God forgave me when I hit foul balls from time to time, but he was very, very, very slow to like me. The, the view I had of God in many of those 17 years was a very small God who had relationship issues, not a very biblical view of God. So whenever I would fail um, maybe it was a pervasive failure, some addiction, something I couldn't get rid of. Maybe it was some big failure that I have. I, I would pray, but I would always imagine God looking at me, at me saying, Are, do you mean it this time? This is the kind of thing, Luke, that you bring to me often using different words and different times. And you always promise that you're going to change. You always give a vow that things are going to be different. What makes this different? What makes this different than the last 38,000 times you've prayed the same thing? That's how I would always imagine it, right? That I just wasn't very trustworthy and I'd have to prove myself. And listen, I was happy to prove myself. In order to get him to believe that I meant it this time, happy to prove myself. But it wouldn't take long for me to blow it again, right? New, new vows, more proving, more performance, more work, because I wanted God to be less skeptical of me. I didn't want him to just love me. I wanted him to like me. I wanted to be likable in his eyes. Listen, this is how your neighbors view Knoxville, by the way, or God. This is how they view God. Knoxville, as a city, will look at God, and when I say Knoxville, I'm actually saying that most of us in this room probably got out of bed with the same view of God, that God is one to be impressed or disgusted. He's either going to be disgusted with us, maybe a little bit tolerant, or he's going to be impressed based on what? Our performance. Just how much we do what we say we're going to do. So my big question for you and your soul, really, as we walk into this passage is, do you think God is doubtful of you or unconvinced? Is he skeptical? Does he love you? And does he like you? That's going to be the big question, and that's why I'm thankful for today's parable. We're going to look at the prodigal son. I was telling Ben backstage, this is my favorite parable of all the parables, and it's because it ruins this view of a hesitant God that is disgusted with failures. It ruins it. It turns it upside down. This is a parable for unapproachable losers. This is a parable for repeat failers, those who fail repeatedly. 
This is a parable for me. It's a parable for you. I think this is why society has such an affinity for this parable. It has been ripped off by Hollywood, by the media at large, by other religions. Other religions have had their hand at this parable. And it's because we're drawn as mankind into this otherworldly love, a love with no prerequisites, a love with no kickbacks, a love that does not have to prove itself, a love that does not require earning. We love this idea of it. We, we don't believe it's out there, but we're attracted to it. And yet, as much as we like it, and as odd as this is going to sound, we also love to prove ourselves. We do. I don't even actually know how to put it into words why we like to prove ourselves. I think, I think my theory is, we don't like to trust our likability to somebody else. We want to control it do certain things in a certain way so that we don't have to depend on just being likable just for the sake of being likable, love for the sake of being loved. We want to have control over that. And I think Jesus knew this. Everything I've said, Jesus knew. And so he gives us this gift of this incredible parable. So let's look at Luke 15. This is going to save the day for us. And just by the way, I think this is in verse 2. This will tell you who he's teaching. Remember, the parables, they have an audience. And so if you kind of look at the context, the context will set it up for us. And in verse 2, it says, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. He receives sinners. That's going to be important for us. But look at verse 11. Verse 11, And he said, There was a man who had two sons, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Okay, what we're going to do is we're going to stop right there and I'll explain why in a moment. 
and by the way, prodigal is nowhere in this passage. Right? You probably picked that up. Some of you, we, we call it the prodigal son story because of the little bold print above that. Just as a reminder, you probably already knew this. None of that was in the original manuscripts. Um, chapter titles, numbers, verses, things like that. It wasn't in there, but it's really helpful for us today, right? To locate something in such an extensive piece of literature. But prodigal is not anywhere in there. But all the word means is lavish spender, an extravagant spender, a reckless spender. That's what it means, right? The son was lavish and reckless with his fortune. But this parable, it's far less about how reckless he is with his fortune. It is far more about how the father responds to him, right? Far more about that. And it's actually also about how the older brother responds to the situation. This is a tale about two reactions. If there was a Bible translate, like Zondervan or Lifeway or somebody, they're going to translate a new Bible and they asked me to be on their committee, they would not. I would not be the person for that job. But if they ever cared about my opinion, I would say change this. I don't know that prodigal son is the best title for this story. I'd call it a tale of two reactions or something like that because that is what we're really drawn to in the story. The son, evidently, he gets an advance on his inheritance and then he bounced as quick as he could to spend it. He walked away from family. What he is doing in this, and some of you have heard this in other sermons from other churches growing up, he was basically telling his father, I wished you were dead. Let's just speed this inheritance thing up. I could sit around and wait for you to just die. I don't really want you. I want what you can give. My life is going to be found somewhere else. It's not going to be found here. I'm not content. I'm not satisfied. Satisfaction is somewhere else. That's what he's saying. I want to find myself in this world. And he's not just being disrespectful by it right now. This is a betrayal. The the, the far country, or some of your Bibles say the distant country, that is the place in the ancient world where the values that were so precious here are disregarded. So he's not saying no to relationship alone. He's saying no to relationship and everything dad taught him. All of the values, all of what is important. And trying to find himself, as the story goes, he ends up losing himself. And famines are good at this too, by the way, right? Famines are really good at this, at rattling our ability to kind of sustain ourselves. And there he is, but no money, and therefore no friends. Notice how quickly that left. And he sells himself into a service that is full of shame by working for a Gentile pig farmer. And I think it's probably important at this moment to maybe zoom in on who he is talking to in the Pharisees who would never, ever dream of being in this situation, nor would they be okay with it. You don't work for a Gentile. You don't run away from dad. You don't do the things that they did. And you also don't get around pigs. This guy is doing everything that they would never, ever, ever imagine themselves doing. In fact, they're grumbling about Jesus eating with people. People that they would see as unclean pigs. And he's not just eating with them. He's sharing moments with them. Sharing memories with them. He's crying with them. He's laughing. He's hugging. He's giving his life for them. It says in the second verse, he receives sinners. Man, there might not be very many more powerful moments and phrases in your Bible than that. He receives sinners. That's the picture we have. His embrace of an unclean populace made the religious world very nervous. It still does, by the way, still does. 
But Jesus, in our story today, he visits and comes close to rock bottom. He finds us who are just circling the drain, and he comes close. That's where this guy is. He's at rock bottom, sharing food with livestock. It's not where he saw himself. He's got no compassion. He's in a land of no compassion, a land of no supply. Friends gone, contacts gone, dreams gone. Again, famines do this. Some of you are in one today too, by the way, right? Famines, maybe not a financial one or a food one, but maybe a purpose and direction one. I hear that a lot. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life. I don't know where I'm going in this world. I feel dry. Or I don't have any energy. No motivation. No get up and go. It's a famine. You're feeling a famine. That's what it looks like. What you used to trust in has left you. And when we find ourselves at rock bottom, we also find ourselves doing things we never thought we would ever do, like this guy. Right? Never thinking that he would find himself feeding pigs, maybe stealing some of their food from time to time because he's starving. He found himself in a place he'd never dreamed of. But, I mean, let's be honest. No one grows up wanting to be addicted to pornography, ever. Nobody ever grows up wanting to be addicted to food or the adulation that comes from social media. Nobody grows up wanting to cut themselves or be divorced. Nobody grows up wanting some of the things, some of the places we find ourselves in. Listen, you go to any playground in Knoxville, Tennessee this next weekend and find kids playing around, if it's not too cold, find kids playing around and walk up and ask them what they want to be when they grow up, they don't say any of the stuff I just mentioned, right? None of it. They have hopes, they have dreams. Also, you could find any homeless person holding a sign full of misspelled words, looking at you through your windshield while you're waiting for the light to turn, and ask them if they ever thought that they would end up there. And they're not going to say yes. That was somebody's kid. They were the ones playing on the playground. They never aspired to that place. But that's what famines do. That's what famines do. And at this point in our story, the Pharisees would have loved this part of the story, the rock bottom part. Right? They would have loved it. It's karma. I mean, they didn't call it that because they weren't Buddhists. They were good Jews. But they would have said, this is karma. This guy's getting what he deserves. That's the anthem of the self-righteous. This guy is getting what he deserves. That's the older brother's posture, by the way. We're going to talk about that in another moment. Spoiler, we're both brothers in this story. <laughs> okay, We are both of them. But I just want to focus on the younger one right now. Because you and I, we are the ones who wander away from the presence of the Father, rejecting his values, rejecting his love, just to find ourselves famished in a faraway country we thought would just bring us satisfaction, but it find famine instead. And now we're covered with shame and regret, and we're just hoping to be likable. Am I clean enough to come home? Can I get affection again? The reason Jesus is telling this parable, by the way, is because of Israel. Israel. Israel was really good at rebelling against God by saying, I want the good things, the blessings that you give, but I don't want anything to do with you. The whole Old Testament is full of that cycle over and over again. God, we want what you can give. We do not want you. He's talking about that. He's talking about these Pharisees. He's also talking about me, and he's talking about you. Because we could be so fooled into thinking that significant life can be found way outside of God, away from the Father, in a faraway country. We want paradise, but without the paradise maker. 
We want paradise, but without what makes paradise paradise, which is God in the center of it, which paradise without God is just another way of saying hell. That's all it is. But we think we have to go to a faraway country to get what we really, really, really want, and God is holding us back. God is holding us back. We want paradise, for sure. We just don't want the Father. And when famine comes, we find ourselves so very far from where we thought we would ever go, right? can't believe I'm thinking these things. I can't believe I'm saying these things. I can't believe I'm doing these things. Look, look what I've become. Look what I've done. Look where I'm at. And then we have this really cool development in the story. The passage says he came to himself. He came to himself. That's another way of saying repentance. He had an epiphany, a revelation, you can call it, right, of how far he has descended. He can, he can clearly see what's going on now, of where he is at. When you come to yourself, when you come to your senses, that is a function of the work of God on your behalf. That is not your mere mental muscle turning just at the right speed so that you realize like you're solving a math equation of what has happened. That is something God has handed you. It is something he has gifted you with. Without God's grace, this guy stays in the mud with the pigs. Without God's grace, we die in our sin, unaware that we even need help. Without grace, we're stuck in mud. No eyes to see. It is grace from God given to us as a gift, totally despite us, that opens our eyes to see even how far we have fallen. I've talked about this many times from the stage. The Puritans would call this sight of sin. It's actually the first sign of repentance. The first sign of change is a clear sight of sin. And that itself is a spirit-infused work that God gives you and me. Why am I telling you this? Because it should encourage you when you come to yourself. When you come to yourself, be encouraged. Be encouraged. God is very close. He's there. He's invested. It's not like he's waiting for you. He is there. He's got his hands all over that moment or else you wouldn't see anything. You would be blind. And God not only wants you to see where you are at, he wants you to know he is there to escort you home. He's to bring you back. Some of you are here today. That's why I'm nailing this as, as long as I can because before you even got here, you saw your life, you wanted change, and you need to know that that is from God. God is doing that. He is here. So this guy in our story, he begins this uh, walk back, which becomes a little bit of a whiteboard session. He's practicing this great big speech he's going to never get to use, basically, but he's at least working it over in his head. These are the things I, I can't wait to tell dad, right? He plots how to get a skeptical father's love back. He wants to be likable again. I get this guy. I get him. You do too, right? We get this guy. Because when we come to ourselves, we look at our life and we see, I am covered in mud. I've got a lot of cleaning to do. Oh, I've got a lot of proving to do. So before we even say a word to the Father, we start working to be more impressive. We say to ourselves, if God was not hesitant before, oh, he's hesitant now. I mean, if, if it was hard enough in the early days to earn, to get favor from him, how much more now? How can I convince him that I mean it this time? How can I rephrase my vows? What performance items can I add to change? What can I do to be different, to show him that I really mean it? You see, we refuse to believe that we're likable unless we carry penance with us. That's what it is. That's what repentance can look like. We want to be a servant. That's what he's doing. We don't want to be a child. We want things to do. 
Give me a job. Give me a task. Give me a chore. Give me a way to what? Prove myself. To prove myself. He won't have it. He won't have it. Here's the cool part about the story. And this is where I think the hook is. Remember, we've been talking through the parables about how every parable has embedded in it a hook. Something unexpectedly happening. And that's where the principle sits. With our eyes now not being ancient Israel eyes or ancient Mediterranean eyes, it's hard for us to spot the hook sometimes. right? And this is kind of one of those times. It's hard for us to see it. But here's the hook. Fathers don't run. Fathers don't run, especially betrayed ones. They don't. But that's the main idea of our passage. Our Father runs to show affection to those who least deserve it. That's the beauty of this. And he's not skeptical. He's extravagant. He's lavish. He's reckless. He's over the top. It's really a prodigal God more than it is a prodigal son. I mean, the climax of our passage is not the repentance of the son. It's the joy of the Father. That's the climax. That's where this thing peaks. The father is going to decorate him with honor. That's what he's doing. The ring on, robe on, shoes on. He's decorating him with celebration. The imagery here is absolutely overwhelming to the ancient mind. We lose it a little bit because not very many of us wear robes, unless you're a weirdo, right? Walk around the house in a robe. We're just not big robe people. And if you want meat, you can go get meat anywhere you want, anytime, probably a lot better than their meat, right? Jewelry's not, it's, it's lost on us. Back then, this was overwhelming what is going on. And he did not even get to use his groveling speech. He doesn't cut him off, but he cuts him off. You can tell that when you're just reading between the lines. Listen, if the Pharisees were still listening at this point in the game, their self-righteousness would have been jolted. All of this is unexpected. This is what they would have expected. A good Jewish father would not be caught waiting on the deck, looking at the horizon, waiting for sun to come back. He definitely would not pull up the robe and run to him, and then he would not do anything more than just kind of put his hands on his hip and expect work. Oh, you're going to have to do some work if you want to get close to me again. You're going to have to do something. Let me hear it. Go ahead. What's your new vow sound like? Is it going to be different than the last one? Let me hear it. I'm sure it's going to be real impressive. The expectation is that the son must suffer for reconciliation to happen. That is the contemporary expectation then. And and by the way, Buddhism rips this off here. I don't expect everyone to know a lot about Buddhism. I don't know a lot about, but but I know that they have a prodigal son story in Buddhism. They don't call it that. And the story's a little different than ours. It's ripped off of ours, but it's different. And this one, the son comes back and yet he cannot recognize the father. The father somehow is obscured and he doesn't recognize him as dad. But he knows he's a master and he needs a place. He needs a home. So he starts working. He starts employing himself. And and, and the jobs start off small, maybe a little insignificant, but they escalate, right? They amplify into more important jobs with more responsibility and more esteem. And then he keeps climbing the ladder of work, of performance, of service until he gets to this place where he's incredibly impressive. And at that point in the story, the shrouded father shows that he, in fact, is dad. And they're reconciled. And everyone is happily together forever. That's their story. It's total garbage. That, it's, it, that's a parable of merits where performance comes before love. But in Christianity, love comes because of the performance of Christ. 
It's a flipped version of this very story. Here's what we need to know. Jesus receives sinners. Sinners. But he won't let them be servants. Just family. He will not require tax collectors and prostitutes to clean themselves before he hugs them. He's not looking for impressive people to love or like. He's not. And you can quote me on this. He's not even waiting for us to repent before he comes near. Did you catch that? The father showed him affection before he even said a word. He was running before the son even cleared his throat to give his reason, his new vow, his repentance. The son's confession did not bring the father's love. You see, there's velocity to the love of God. There is real speed to it. It's not skeptically slow. It's not reluctant. Listen, whenever you begin the journey home to be close to God, understand he's moving a lot faster than you are. He's actually already there. He's there. He has no karma with him. When you're hoping that your vows and your speeches are impressive, he's busy loving you totally despite you. He's graceful. And how do we know this? How do we know this for a fact, what I'm saying is true? Because he didn't leave you in the mud. He didn't leave you blind to your position. He gave you eyes to see. That means he's already in pursuit. He's already moving. He's already shaping. He's already purposing. He's already driving. There's nothing wrong with strategies to change. There's nothing wrong with repentant prayers. There's nothing wrong with wanting to use tools to be different tomorrow than you were yesterday. Nothing wrong with any of it. I do it all, but it will not bring love. It will not bring love. Love is there. Jesus receives sinners. He doesn't receive ex-sinners, but sinners. And he does this or the gospel's not good news. I say that because I don't know what you're bound up in today. I don't know. I don't know whatever it is in the far country that has convinced you that it can give you what God cannot. And maybe it's left you in a famine. And maybe you're coming to yourself today. Maybe that's happening. Here's what I can tell you. You're not going to find God gloating or grading your strategy. You're not going to find him disapproving or with his hands on his hips. You're not going to find him impatiently tolerating you. You're going to find him running, smiling, and ready to dress you in honor and celebration. Not because you've done anything good, not because you've got enough mud off of your life, but because of what Christ has done. Why would God do all of this, by the way? That's the big question, right? Why would God do all of this? What would make him consider man like he does? The truth in the gospel for you and me in this passage is Jesus became the prodigal son for our sake. Consider it. Consider the thread of the good news that moves through this parable. Jesus leaves the house of the Father to come to a foreign country of famine and no compassion to give all that he had. And to get home, he would move right through the cross. So who's more prodigal in this story? Who is more lavish, extravagant? I think we're allergic to this kind of boundless love. I think we're hesitant with the velocity of this love. It unnerves us. It, it, it makes us uncomfortable. We kind of long for conditions to be given to us. This is what it says in Ephesians. And you don't have to turn there if you don't want to. It'll be up on the screen. But in Ephesians, Paul actually picks up on a thread of this in the second chapter. This would be a familiar quote or a familiar passage for many of you. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not 
This is not, this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That we should walk in We're allergic to this. We want conditions. This is what Henry Nguyen says on this strange place of loving this love and not liking this love. He says it this way. It is the place where I so much want to be, but I'm so fearful of being. It is the place where I will receive all I desire, all that I ever hope for, all that I will ever need, but it is also the place where I have to let go of all I most want to hold on to. It is the place that confronts me with the fact that truly accepting love, forgiveness, and healing is so much harder than giving it. It is the place beyond earning, beyond deserving, and rewarding. It is the place of surrender and complete trust. This is our modern problem. This is our modern issue as a church, as a people of God. We like the idea of unconditional love more than receiving it. We like the idea more than the actuality. And there's heavy implications for us as a church, as a people, for you and me. It's not just a small minor piece of theology that we gotta kinda work the knots out whenever we have time to do it. This has heavy implications. Paul Miller, who wrote a book, who's written a bunch of books, one of them on prayer, he says this, he says, we begin by the gospel in order to become the gospel. And people might struggle with that verbiage, becoming the gospel, what does that even mean? All he really means to say this is, we begin by the gospel in order to embody the gospel, to carry the gospel. We, we have to get it before we can give it, is just another way of saying it. We cannot give love to reckless sinners unless we allow ourselves to be loved as a reckless sinner. There's no other way of getting this done. You see, what we do is we want reckless sinners to come to us and we want them to have a speech, don't we? We want them to have a vow. You've done damage and I might forgive you. Tell me how you're never gonna do it again though and mean it. And how can I trust you? We're hesitant. We're skeptical. We're not confident. We want them to have it all laid out, a vow that works. And this is especially true if their mess is against us if they betrayed and abandoned us. But if you, want, if you want to receive sinners as Jesus did and be a healthy missionary, and when I say missionary, you need to understand how important that is to us as a people. It's one of our values as a church that we are missionaries. We are sent people, the ones that embody the gospel, as Paul Miller says, carry the gospel, extend the gospel, that if you are a Christian, you are in fact a missionary, an embodied ambassador of the gospel story itself, carrying this good news to people that are never gonna come into this room, <laughs> never come into your living room maybe. You're a missionary, you're a missionary. And if you want to receive Jesus or receive sinners as Jesus and be a healthy missionary, you have to be satisfied by the embrace of a father who runs to you unconditionally. You've gotta be open to it, there is no other way. There's no other way. And in the season we are, really in the world that we live in, we're a messy people. Working with messy people who do messy things, right? In a faraway country, full of famines and no compassion, we do shameful things to others and things that are shameful have been done against us. That's a tough place to live, isn't it? Who is it? 
Who is it in your life that you're expecting a better speech from? You want vows. You want a strategy. You want to hear something that you haven't heard before. Where are you less excited to extend a reckless, extravagant love? That place where you're grappling, struggling, it's simply because you are failing and struggling to see how God has extravagantly lavished his love on you. They're connected. There are implications to this, as I said. And you stand no chance of extending grace and a believable gospel without seeing yourself as a reckless mess before an extravagant God. No ability. So yeah, we begin with the gospel in order to carry the gospel. But the good news is the gospel's perfect for us, right? Perfect for sinners. Perfect for performers and mask wearers. The gospel's perfect for extravagant sinners. Perfect for those who have had shameful things done and who are shameful to others. The gospel is perfect from unapproachable losers, failures. It's perfect. And right now, God is searching the landscape and he's looking to run. He's looking to move fast. In fact, he's already there. And he's not expecting some speech full of vows and promises. He just wants your trust. Doesn't want you to be a servant. Doesn't want you to be an employee. He wants you to be child, loved one, one to be celebrated, dined with, partied with. That's what he wants. You're free to just enjoy him. And this is why I say that, because enjoying him makes you free to grow. You're free to enjoy God, because enjoying God makes you free to grow. And listen, if you're watching online or you're here and you would say that you are far from Christ, or maybe you wouldn't even know how to label yourself. You you don't really know where you fit into a picture like this. Maybe you did something or said something as a kid. Maybe you've always struggled with that. Maybe you've walked the aisles a million times and still are unsure. Maybe you know for a fact you are far from God. Can we just admit that the thing about famines is that you don't see them coming? (laughs) You just don't see them coming. But when they do... There's no mistaking you've hit rock bottom. None. Place of deep lack and no compassion. And you end up doing things to survive that you never thought you would do. And the gospel, if you hear it right, seems too good to be true. Seems too good. Our God runs to us. He purchases unconditional love for us. What's the catch? There is one. You can't work for it. You can't be impressive enough for it. You can't vow your way into it. You can't strategize your way into it. That's the catch. Because performance dies at the foot of the cross where Jesus' perfect performance puts a bow on it all. It is finished. His performance makes ours null and void. You could trust a father like this. You could trust a father like this. He loves us as family. Loves us as family. 